0: I so I wanted to start by reading a passage from, uh, from a children's book by a Christian author named C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a whole series called the Narnia series, the first of which is the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And uh, in this book, uh, four children stumble through a wardrobe into another world, uh, and they enter the other world in, in, literally in the backwoods. In the forest, and so they find out about this wood, about this whole world, and the way that it works, in, in bits and pieces as they have conversations with different animals. Because in this world, animals talk, and uh, the four children come into the home of Mister and Missus Beaver, and they begin having a conversation uh, about some other creature named Aslan. So then we uh, we hear this. Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices all at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why, you don't know. He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the world, but word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. It's he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone, too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? Turn Aslan into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. So they're having this conversation. There's a a wicked witch that rules the land. And they're having this conversation about the interaction between Aslan and the witch. And the children are still trying to figure out who this Aslan thing is the sky is. And the beaver says, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who, the king, who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. "'That you will, dearie, and no mistake,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan "'without their knees knocking, "'they're either braver than most or else just silly.' "'Then he isn't safe?' asked Lucy. "'Safe,' said Mr. Beaver. "'Don't you hear what Mr. Beaver tells you? "'Who said anything about safe?' "'Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. "'He's the king, I tell you.' "'I'm longing to see him,' said Beaver, said Peter, "'even if I do feel frightened.' when it comes to the point. C.S. Lewis has uh, created in his story this world where there's a great king. And he kind of communicates the the awe and reverence that fall on everyone who hears about him and that he's certainly not safe, but he is good. So in this sermon series, The Big Story, we're learning about the big story of the whole Bible in The big story is the story of the great king. The great king and his kingdom. And the king, in the Bible, administrates his kingdom through a series of covenants. Um, This is a a biblical word, a bit of a theological word. Uh, It's been described, covenants have been described a couple different ways. One person says, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered another author says a covenant is a relationship between persons begun by the sovereign determination of the greater party in which the greater commits himself to the lesser in the context of mutual loyalty and in which mutual obligations serve as illustrations of that loyalty so here's what this means there's a great king governing history We learn about him in the stories of scripture, and in scripture, we progressively learn more and more about who he is and the way he works through the series of covenants that he makes with people, and these covenants are agreements between he and his people, and he always initiates them, and the agreement is mutual loyalty and obligation to one another uh, and sort of stipulations, rules that govern and guide that loyalty. And this is the way the king administrates his kingdom. A series of promises where at each stage we find out more about the great king. Uh, last week, Todd talked about creation and Adam and the first covenant that God makes where he promises to provide for Adam and Eve everything they need. And he'll be their God and they'll be his people just as long as they don't eat the fruit in the garden. Uh, but, but they do. And so the story gets complicated and interesting from there. The second covenant comes immediately after the great flood. It's called the covenant with Noah. Perhaps, I think for many of us here, the most difficult thing in coming to the story of the great flood and the covenant of Noah is not not in believing that there is a great king who is lord over history and communicating himself, through the scriptures, perhaps what's most difficult for many of us is to believe that the great king spoken of in the Bible is the same in in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that the great king, Jesus, meek and mild, is, is the same great king, God of wrath and destruction in the Old Testament. Uh, in, in fact, after Jesus returned to heaven, one of the first great heresies that arose in the church was Uh, came about by a man named Marcion who read stories like the flood in the Old Testament and read about Jesus meek and mild in the New Testament and said these are not the same God. They're not the same God. So he kind of got rid of the Old Testament and James and some other books and he formed a, a smaller canon. And so for the first time in church history the church had to gather together and define what the scriptures were. Because it had seemed to Marcion that they weren't all speaking about the same God. It's a, a heresy that's been rejected. There's great things for us to learn if we can accept the tension of of this God being the same God throughout the Scriptures. Um, there's uh, many challenging things in the flood. Um, it, from the standpoint of how is it that people live 900 years and, and where did all this water go if it covered the whole world because elements just don't go nowhere. And I, I thought about that for a while and that's the point where I said, well, Nathaniel, you've got four sermons here. Um, so I, I put that one away, but if that's a great stumbling block for you in hearing this message and hearing these scriptures, I, I'd love to chat because those are good questions and uh, there's good answers for good questions. But suffice to say even having a bit of a background in geology, I believe these stories are true. I think it's incredibly important for our formation that that there was a flood and, and that people died, and these aren't myths, that God is communicating about himself in time and space. And if this helps you out, every single ancient culture has a flood story. Something dramatic happened in the ancient world that everyone was responding to. And if we receive... These words from Scripture, there will be things for us to respond to as well. What we learn about the Lord from the story of the great flood and then his following covenant with Noah, we learn about his judgment. We learn about his judgment. And we also learn about his redemption. So we're going to take a look at those two things this morning, intention with each other, judgment and redemption And we'll talk briefly about what it means for us to fit into this story of the great king who comes in judgment, but also with an eye to redemption. Um, The story of the flood and the covenant with Noah really covers Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. The reading this morning just came from 9, but I'm going to back up a little bit and just address the story of the flood as a whole. The Bible does teach that God sent rain for 40 days and 40 nights and covered the whole world and everything that breathed died except for Noah and his family in the ark. The first thing for us to learn is that God's judgment is is real and it's just. And it's a theme that actually shows up not just with the mean, judgmental God of the Old Testament, but throughout the Bible. In fact, no one in the Bible talks about judgment more than Jesus. No one references hell and destruction more than Jesus. Because he knows that it's, it's a reality of our present order. He wants to warn us about it. From the story of the scriptures, the, the great king and his covenants, What's surprising is not the judgment of the flood. What's surprising, actually, is that anyone survives at all. If you think of it from the standpoint of a covenant, that the great king comes, as we said on our confession, and provided everything necessary, was gracious in every possible way to Adam and Eve, gave them everything they could want or need, and he walked with them in the cool of the day in the garden as their friend, as their father, as their lord provided them every comfortable thing and asked only that they not eat the fruit in return it's 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 a covenant it's an agreement between god and man that's gracious in every way and yet even that that one simple request in response to this overwhelming gracious covenant adam and eve could not keep and and anyone from any ancient culture that understood about the nature of covenants would assume at the moment the fruit is eaten oh boy here comes the just judgment that a, a just and fair and gracious covenant was set up and it's it's been broken and so now blood and death which is what God promised that death would come and so the surprising thing is that what results is only spiritual death that, that Adam and Eve are actually allowed to continue to to live. And the the story of the evil and the corruption continues to, to get worse and worse. Within one generation, Adam and Eve's children, one kills another. And within a few generations later, a, a man named Lamech actually makes up a, a poem, a little ditty, a song about, hey, Cain killed Abel. You think he's something? I'm really something. I've killed 10 times the amount of people he's killed. And this sort of the this, this sin and destruction and Chaos and creation and amongst people sort of tumble downhill and get worse and worse to the point where God says, "I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I ever made these people." That His heart is pained for the the corruption and the twisted nature of His His creation, the natural world, and also the human beings that He's made. I um I get to travel to California usually about three times a year for Presbytery meetings, and it's incredibly refreshing for me to be able to go away and meet with other ministers and and to come back. I've realized part of the reason why I think it's so refreshing for me to be able to travel is that I get in certain patterns in my life that I don't see when I live in them, and then when I leave for a week and come back, I all of a sudden see them so clearly when I never saw them before. I land at the airport, get a ride home, walk into the gate, and immediately think, why are all the plants in my garden crusty and dead? I've not watered my garden in like two months. How did I let that happen? You know, and then I go inside and I'm like, why is there a pile of papers from high school students I teach, unreturned papers that's like a foot tall in my closet? When I live here in the busyness of my life, I pass these things every day and I, I don't see them. It's just part of the pattern that I'm in. Dead things in my garden and papers in my closet and every unorganized thing. And I leave and I come back and it's just, it, I see it clearly for the first time when I've been living in it the whole time. I think that's part of the struggle with the judgment of the flood for us is we live in the brokenness of the world all the time. A- and we see it, we we all feel it, but not really. And I'm steadfastly convinced if we could leave the world and step for an afternoon into the peace of joy of heaven, to be in the presence of the Father and his Son and the Holy Spirit with the angels, and then to return? Yeah. Why didn't I see that before? All the bleh. And our Father, who lives in the peace and the wisdom of himself, sees it all the time. The destruction and the chaos that come about because of us, because of our fallen, broken nature. You know, in Revelation it says that all of creation calls out longing for redemption, and I believe the creation is calling out longing for redemption from us. Because in the covenant of creation, in the, co- in the covenant with Adam, it's our calling to be God's representatives on the world, to care for the world, and we, in our broken nature, mess it up. We mess everything up. Our relationships with each other and the planet around us. So I was beginning to learn about and understand some of these things as I was being revived in college. I was um, taking some of those geology classes I mentioned before. And um, one, of was a, one of them was a class on rivers, streams, and beaches and how water erodes mountains down to boulders and boulders to rocks and rocks to sand and how they get carried down to the sea. It's, it's, it's a cycle. And uh, one of my professors named David Montgomery, uh, who is a professor of rivers and beaches, uh, wrote a book called King of Fish, The Thousand-Year Reign of Salmon, which I highly recommend. Um, So so I went to the University of Washington. We're in Seattle. So my professor is studying rivers and streams and what lives in rivers and streams but salmon. And that's just, it's always a topic of conversation in Seattle because we all know that the number of salmon is depleting. And so my professor, with his experience with rivers and streams, had interacted with some other biologists and wrote a book, about salmon and about rivers and streams. And I didn't even know this until I read the book, but there used to be robust salmon runs in Scotland, New England, California, Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. And they have disappeared in that order. So about 600 years ago, the salmon in Scotland were gone. Back in the day, people in Scotland subsisted heavily off of salmon, and they um, destroyed the rivers and streams in the Industrial Revolution and ate the salmon to death, and they're gone. And then that happened in California. It's mostly happened in Oregon. It's partially happened in Washington. And if we're not careful, it'll happen in Alaska next. And then he makes notes about the way, how, how resilient, my professor does, about how resilient nature is. And if you just pay attention to the way the natural streams and rivers flow and create pockets of sand and gravel, it actually provides exactly what the salmon need. That all you need to do to replenish salmon stocks is actually just to just leave the streams alone. That if the state of Washington spent all the money it spent on salmon restoration and just bought up the property along streams there was a 50 foot boundary on both sides of streams and they just let trees fall into streams and them sort of do what they do the salmon would come back which is to me an illustration of the resiliency and the great wisdom that God built into creation from the beginning but then I asked myself this question I I don't know if this illustration works for you but this was profound for me If human beings didn't sin any of the sins that we talk about so much, lying, stealing, cheating, adultery, murder, all the sort of grade-A sins that we hate, if the only thing we'd ever done was kill off the salmon of the Lord Jesus Christ, would he be justified in condemning us? his creation, for doing that to his world. And I think that he would. That he, he really cares about this place and the things that he's made. And you can, you can apply that to all elements of creation. You can apply it to human beings and the way that we treat one another. God's judgment is real and just. There is a sense in which we, we deserve judgment. As Abraham Lincoln said, the, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I only also want you to see that God's judgment is about defending, not destroying the creation, which at first seems a little bit strange because he's destroyed all of creation in the flood. But remember, he works to preserve man and beast in the ark. What he's communicating in the flood is I care about you and I care about the creation too much to let you go where you would naturally go on your own. That judgment consequences always mark out what's most important. Even in the, in the covenant, in our passage in chapter 9, the Lord talks about the death penalty for the first time. He says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made man in his own image. Here's what the Lord is communicating. Human beings have been made in my image, and they are too important to be hurt, maimed, or killed. And so he establishes the death penalty for murder as a mark of preserving life. He's communicating to us as human beings that life is way more important than we think, than we're led to think on our own. And, and this really is, is the seed. It's the beginning of the establishment of the state that ever since then governments and militaries and police forces exist to represent God's justice and care for the earth. That, that people are too valuable to allow unjust war to continue. That um, when you're speeding down Kamehameha Highway and, and the police officers are there, parked under the H3, where they have been the last couple weeks, BS, they're representing the Lord that this is the beginning of him commissioning, giving authority to human beings to represent his judgment and justice on the world because human beings are too important for you to drive too fast. That makes sense? God's judgment is real and just. It's about defending, not destroying. The judgment of the flood also foreshadows the final judgment. So this is the difficulty I always had with the flood. God says, I'm so sad that I made these people, so I'm going to wipe them out. And so he wipes everything out, and he saves Noah. And so it feels for a moment like we've got a fresh start. Now. Now we can redo this whole thing, and it's going to be great this time. We got rid of all the bad people. And within two chapters, we've got the Tower of Babel. We're we're headed downhill again. It even says, just before our passage here, in chapter 8, Before the flood, he says, the heart, the intent of man is evil all the time. So then there's the flood, and Noah comes out of the ark, and he offers sacrifice. And then we read this, this is 8.21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is, present tense, evil all the time from his youth. Well, at this point, the pool of people that he could be talking about is incredibly small. He just saved righteous Noah and his family from the flood. They came out, offered sacrifice, and the Lord says, I'm not going to do this again. And it's not because now we've gotten rid of all the evil. It's actually, I'm not going to do this again because you guys are still evil in your hearts. That judgment doesn't work for restoration. it It's not effective to, to change the heart or to bring about redemption and life. It It just sets a boundary over what's important. But the flood in itself didn't have the power to really help. So why the flood? That's what I mean by my frustration. Okay, so... It almost feels as if the Lord kind of had to try this out. He was like, all right, let's try the judgment thing. Oh, shoot, that didn't work. What are we going to do next? But that's not really what's happening here. This is why I included um, a quote in the front on the reflection section, uh, Thoughts on the Gospel, the second one. This is from O. Palmer Robertson. I'll read this. The Lord knew precisely the state of man's heart before the flood and certainly understood the limitations of judgment's power to change the heart of man. However, to provide an appropriate historical demonstration of the ultimate destiny of a world under sin, God consumed the earth with a flood. This cataclysmic event later became the model of God's final judgment of the earth and the basis for refuting the argument of scoffers who would mock the certainty of an ultimate accounting day. Here's what he's saying. We need to know that judgment is a reality. That it's coming at the end. And it came in the flood as a sign and a reminder, as a picture of, of what's coming at the end. That, that God, like I said, loves us too much, loves his creation too much to allow us to continue in this sin. And there will be an accounting at the end, just as there was in the flood. Peter, at the end of his second book, says this about judgment and referring to the flood. He says, In the last days there will come scoffers, people who sort of make fun of the Christian faith. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says this, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly saying that the flood is is a sign of of the judgment to come. We look back to it as as a mark, a reminder that this this is the way that God feels about sin and that, that judgment is deserved. I recently watched the movie Flight with uh Denzel Washington. I think that's the name of it. Um it's a story about a plane crash. Denzel Washington is the pilot, um, and he pulls off some miraculous maneuvers, and most people survive. But it's not really the story about an airplane crash. It's really the story about alcoholism, and addiction, and depression, because uh, Denzel Washington is an alcoholic and was actually drunk at the time he was piloting the plane in the crash. Uh, By the there's. Some fast forward scenes in the movie, so I can't just, if, if you decide to wash it after I've, it's not entirely clean. But the story, I think, is a really good one, a great picture of the depth and the hurt of alcoholism. That there's an inquiry into the crash, uh, blood tests of all the crew members, uh, lawyers are involved trying to save the airline and uh, Denzel Washington from trouble. And long story short, it gets to the end of the movie and Denzel has been trying to not drink this entire time because he knows the TV cameras of the entire world are on him, and he just can't do it. In fact, the night before the inquiry, he gets trashed and arrives before the committee on the floor with TVs all around, drunk. And and a miraculous thing happens that his... Blood report from the crash is dismissed as not acceptable as evidence. There's no evidence that he was drunk, except that there were three canisters of vodka in the trash can on the airplane. And the investigator says, we know that one of the flight attendants had been drinking because there was alcohol in her blood. And so she asked the pilot, Denzel Washington, is it your opinion that the alcohol was consumed by her. And he and you realize all in one moment that all he has to say is, yes, yes, that's my opinion. The story's over and he's free. And there's a long pause and the, the questioner repeats the question and then he says, God help me. And then he says, no, no, that is not my opinion, because I drank them. I consumed them during the flight. I betrayed the trust of the people because I'm an alcoholic, and I'm drunk even now. And that husha. <gasps> falls all over the whole room and it's it's such this conflict of emotions because you know it's a, it's not his fault that the plane crashed in fact he actually saved the plane but it's still wrong that he was drinking while flying and he's been lying about it his whole life and he actually says in the epilogue it was if it was as if i ran out of lies and i couldn't tell one more lie and had to begin telling the truth, and so it transitions with him sharing his story in, in prison. And you're sad and yet so relieved at the same time because there's such freedom in embracing the reality of our need and our broken nature. I think the great stumbling block of the judgment of the flood feels a little less so when we're able to bow the knee to our Father's judgment. Well, I've consumed most of my time on my first point. Um, But I don't want to leave you without hearing the news of redemption. And so in brief, hear this before we go, that God is not just about judgment. In fact, the judgment exists to create the context for redemption. If you hear one thing today, I wanted it to be this. That even in judgment, God is not in the business of throwing things away. That in the garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled, he immediately could have just destroyed him. Well, that didn't work. Let's try again. And he, and he doesn't. In fact, what he immediately does is he offers the promise that Todd told us about last week to the woman. From you will come a seed, and he will do battle with the serpent, and the serpent will bite his heel, and he will crush the serpent's head. It's uh, what theologians call the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. It's it's shadowy, it's hard to understand, but somewhere in there, God is communicating: I am going to do something to undo this mess. And so, when God comes to Noah before the flood, He says that He's calling him because He remembered His covenant. And I think that's what he means. He's remembering what he said in Genesis 3.16, that I'm going to work here for redemption. See, we know that Noah wasn't spared because of his righteousness, because we hear of him being evil immediately after the flood. He was spared because God remembered his covenant. Because he's not in the business of throwing things away. He's in the business of remaking life from death. And so God chooses Noah out of his own goodwill, and with Noah is included his, his family, that on behalf of the status that Noah has received graciously through covenant with God, his sons and his sons' wives and his wife are included, that God is working with families. This becomes significant later when we talk about infant baptism. It's not because of anything in Noah, but because of the covenant god remembering his promise to be gracious to us we'll find out later in the coming covenants that just as i said earlier we deserve judgment for those of us who have received god's gracious judgment get ready for this this is going to feel uncomfortable it's also true that we deserve redemption We deserve it only because it's what the Lord has promised us in these covenants, that he promises here in the covenant with Noah to preserve the creation, to preserve the, the line of those he's being merciful to. And we'll find out more and more as we talk about Adam and Moses and David. But because we have in these scriptures a legal document, a covenant, wherein just as the Lord covenanted with Adam and Noah, he's covenanted with us, that his promise to work redemption applies to us. It would now be unjust, of him to apply that judgment and destruction to us because he's already promised that he wouldn't. We see signs and shades of it here. We see that God redeems Noah and his family out of the flood. We see that God redeems the creation and promises to sustain it. God says... In verse 9, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. He's promising until he comes back in the final judgment. He's going to keep redeeming, restoring families like Noah out of the fallen, broken nature. And he's going to continue preserving the creation as a context in which his redemption can take place. I read earlier this passage from Second Peter, where he talks about the flood as a picture of the final judgment. And then he says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, the promise of coming again and final judgment. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason why we've now had thousands of years since the flood before the next judgment, and may have many yet to come, is because the Lord wants to create time and space to work his redemption with the children of Noah and Adam. That's us. And wants to wait as long as possible for as many people to be included in that. That, that promise, him delaying, isn't really for us. We're in already. It's it's for everyone else out there that hasn't yet received and heard about this good news. finally, God renews the creation covenant. He renews the role that human beings have to care for the creation. That he gave it to Adam in the beginning. He messed it up. And now we hear in this passage so many words that sound like Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That He's renewing the original covenant. The covenant with Adam, in a sense, has has not expired. He's renewing it, that we still have our role from the beginning to care for one another, to represent him on the earth, to care for creation. As Todd mentioned earlier, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. We invited again to re-inhabit the dignity of the original status we had as his representatives on the earth. I'll end with uh, this passage from the end of the same book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, Aslan fights a great battle, redeems the children from the brokenness of the world. Edmund, one of the children, actually betrays the other children, and Aslan... And Aslan rescues him as well, brings him back. And in the end, the four children are crowned as kings and queens in his country. It says this. For then in the great hall of Cair Paravel, that wonderful hall with the ivory roof and the west wall hung with peacock's feathers and the eastern door which looks towards the sea, In the presence of all their friends and to the sound of trumpets, Aslan solemnly crowned them and led them to the four thrones amid deafening shouts of, Long live King Peter! Long live Queen Susan! Long live King Edmund! Long live Queen Lucy! And they, the two kings and the two queens, they made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and liberated young dwarfs and young satyrs from being sent to school and generally stopped busybodies and interferers, and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. They drove back the fierce giants on the north of Narnia when these ventured across the frontier, and they entered into friendship and alliance with countries beyond the sea and paid them visits of state and received visits of state from them, and they themselves grew and changed as the years passed over them, that C.S. Lewis is inviting us to see, taste, and smell what we were meant for, to be renewed as the kings and queens of creation. And we hear them in their great dignity. It says this, Peter became tall and deep-chested and a great warrior. And he was called King Peter the Magnificent. And Susan grew into a tall and gracious woman with black hair that almost fell to her feet, and the kings of the countries beyond the sea began to send ambassadors asking for her hand in marriage. And she was called Susan the Gentle. And then listen to what happens to Edmund, the one who is the betrayer. Edmund was graver and quieter man than Peter, and great in counsel and judgment. He was called King Edmund the Just. But as for Lucy, she was always gay and golden haired and all the princes in those parts desired her to be their queen and her own people called her Queen Lucy the Valiant. My friends, in the midst of this context of judgment, this is the ideal that God has for us towards which he is redeeming and leading us to be restored as his kings and queens with great dignity on the earth. Let's pray.